Before you get started listening to today's message from Hebrews, consider a couple things first. First of all, you haven't paid attention like you ought to yet. The whole premise of Hebrews is let us pay more attention than we have before. Let us be more attentive. The way that we're more attentive is that we begin with the proper assumption that the word of God is the most important word spoken and should be more important to you and I than any other thing in our lives. I've been with past associations that I've had to leave because of various reasons. But when I look back, the one thing I did not want to leave from previous associations is that I was with people who organized their entire lives around the word of God that was being taught, even if imperfectly. God takes account of that. The second thing that you should take into account today, as I am too, and I always do this in my preparation, you aren't ready and you aren't prepared fully yet to meet your God. If you were, you wouldn't be here anymore. Over the course of my career as a pastor teacher, I've seen parents bring their children away from churches because of the worst possible reason they can do so. There wasn't enough activities for the children. Parents didn't realize that those children, unless there's been a radical change in the children being brought under the word of God, they're not prepared to meet their God. You can prepare them through education. You can give them the best advantages financially. You can give them all that you think they need in this world. And yet your children are not ready and prepared to meet their God. Not yet. And so today's message is the most important one that I've ever preached as a PT, as a pastor teacher, for several reasons, and I hope they become apparent to you, and they will become apparent to you if you listen, trusting in the Lord to listen better than you have ever before. And we should always be prepared to do that. Now, we are in Hebrews 2020. The series generally is called We See Jesus. It's increment 31. It's the 20th part of a series within a series that I'm calling the Corona series with no view at all to a virus, but to the crown placed upon our Lord Jesus Christ. And all the passages we've been dealing with have loosely associated themselves with his coronation his exaltation after making purification for sins. How important is that to you? The whole reason that I have been a pastor for these past 41 and a half years is to say this to people who are interested. Don't be so concerned with the things on this earth, but set your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God in Colossians 3, 2. There's no better place to train in doing this than Hebrews. And I would say to my own congregation, you're not fully prepared to meet your God. 
Now, you could say, well, I thought I was. I have the righteousness of Christ. I'm clothed with his righteousness. He is my sanctification. Yeah, but we're talking about meeting God, the one to whom we must give an account. The word of God is alive and powerful, is sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. And it's a critic of the thoughts and tents of the heart. And we are creatures who are naked and laid wide open before him with whom and to whom we must give an account. Guess where that's found? Hebrews 4, 12, and 13. Now, our local congregation is experiencing in some degree what our groups, DVD groups, and individuals that don't have a group to meet with have been experiencing for years. And I have something to say about that today, too. I hope you'll listen today like you haven't listened before. If you sat down to listen to this in the regular posture that you always take, oh, here's another message, here's another increment, you're dead wrong. You haven't listened well enough. And so today, we want to consider several things. And this will be a word of exhortation, but it'll also be some teaching. Both the old creation and the old self of Christians is entropic in nature. I refer to past messages for this. Both of these entities are in a state of decay, a steady state of continual decay. Romans 8, 20 to 22 reveals this to be true of the creation in general, that is, the universe. And Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 22 reveals this to be true, that is, a steady state of decay, for your former way of living, anastrophen, your former way of conducting your lives, and the old man, gender notwithstanding, the old self, that is in a state of decay, ever decaying more and more. The effect of the teaching of the word, however, including its strong exhortation, is a renewal by the Holy Spirit, which involves the putting off of the old man and the putting on of the new self, who in Christ Jesus is created in accordance with God's likeness, the way God designed humankind to be, Ephesians 4.22 through 24. In this way, the Christian is intended to become a prolepsis or a kind of forecast or preview of the universal new creation that will come about at the universal revelation of Jesus Christ. During the course of this age, and now, that means, there exists the danger of receding, regressing, reverting into the old, and losing out on the prospects, even here and now, as well as prospects to come, of the experience of the coming age. 
For this reason, Hebrews has the character of a word of exhortation. Anyone that's going to exegete it, expound upon it, teach from it, go verse by verse through it, has to realize constantly, and I say this for future PTs and for Sunday school teachers who should be teaching children the word of God and not finding some new activity for them. Oh, they're really going to be prepared to meet their God if they horseback ride somewhere or play ping pong. And so, a word of exhortation is what Hebrews is. God has designed the present interval in the history of our ministry, and I speak as a pastor of Tetelestai Church, but I know I'm appealing to many people who are listening who may not consider themselves a member of this assembly. I don't care. It doesn't matter to me. But if you're listening to this message, God has designed the present interval in the history, not only of our ministry and our assembly, but perhaps in the history of Christians in this generation of Christianity for an intensive period of concentration. I speak as a pastor of a small congregation, but I say that I know he has designed this particular period of our history, this particular interval for an intensive interval of concentration, not on the things of the earth, but on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Not on COVID-19, but Ephesians 3.19, the hill that we should be taking, Pleroma Ridge. Our protracted interval of separation really has little to do with a virus. It has everything to do with the virus. If your mind is on things of this earth, it has nothing to do with a virus. If your mind is focused and your heart is on the treasure in heaven and the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. This is serious business here. This isn't just a message to appreciate. This is a word of exhortation intended to impart real momentum for you so that you can be fully prepared to meet your God. This period of physical separation has rather to do with a divinely arranged, call it a sabbatical, a hiatus, in which the ground lies fallow, to use Hosea's 10.12, Hosea 10.12, I believe it is, his metaphor. The ground lies fallow for a little while. This has been a long time coming for Tetelestai. This is something that God planned without a view to a virus for a long time. I've considered personally taking a sabbatical, and I didn't think it would be quite like this because I'm working harder in this one than I do usually when we meet together as far as studying. The studying has been even more profitable with fewer distractions. So this has to do with a divinely arranged sabbatical in which the ground lies fallow for a little while with a view to a harvest of fruitfulness both in the near and the distant future for you, for your family, for our church. 
Rather than protest against the government, like some preachers and some teachers, some pastors of megachurches want everybody to corral under their leadership and protest, rather than that, I've chosen as a pastor to exploit the present season for our spiritual growth and our forward progress. For this major reason, as well as for other reasons, this hiatus could last for us through the month of June. I'm, pr- I'm in intercessor, intercessory prayer for you and in supplication before the Lord about the timing of this. It has nothing to do with a virus, although in a secondary way, of course, it does. And all precautions should be taken that we know about through science. Not scientism, but true science. Wherein it exists, and if you can find it. So rather than protest against the government, I've chosen as a pastor to exploit the present season, and therefore it could last even longer than some churches would stand for. Each believer in Christ, I'm telling you, This is important, and I hope you'll listen. Each believer in Christ, separately, distinctly, and individually, ought to learn to be spiritually equipped with the confidence to go to the throne of grace for themselves for their families and for others. And to receive help that is timely and suitable for their own situation. Each believer, separately and distinctly as an individual, who has been a bud, remember that old saying, bud, B-U-D? Believer under doctrine. There are believers drifting and there are believers under doctrine. I'm speaking largely to believers under doctrine and to some who are getting weary in the race, getting tired in the fight and fatigued in their situation. A believer under doctrine, after a certain amount of time, ought to to be competent to explain the gospel to others. Each believer should eventually grow to be competent to counsel others. Romans 15, 14 talks about that. To encourage others, Hebrews 3, 13. And to provoke one another to love and good works, Hebrews 10, 24. As the goal of parents is to prepare their children to leave the nest, as it were, and not to stay under mommy and daddy forever. So it is the pastor teacher's goal to make those under his tutelage less dependent on him and more sufficient and proficient by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
with whom they have been called to be partakers and companions, as Hebrews 6, 5 says. By this time, you should be teachers. Now, let that fall where it will among people in the audience that are listening to this message or even watching it. I don't know why you choose to watch it. I ain't much to look at, but I got something to say. By this time, you should be teachers. Doesn't mean everybody's got to be a pastor. In fact, there shouldn't be many of those in any given congregation. Eventually, they grow up and become pastors of other congregations or take over. By this time, you ought to be teachers is a word from God spoken by the PT in Hebrews to some of the saints to whom he was preaching this sermon, which we call Hebrews. I could certainly say this to many who have been with me for decades and who have passed through many seasons of trial and blessing with me, just as one PT among a million in our church history. I've heard recently unsolicited testimonies and read unsolicited. I haven't asked for them, but I've read what people have said to others and it is, there's been no greater encouragement than I've ever received as a pastor to know that what was written to others by certain believers in this church or in one of our DVD groups or another, that they explained it all by themselves, never said Rick said, never said Pastor so-and-so said, never said Jürgen Moltmann said, but had within them the message and the explanation to either a fellow believer or to an unbeliever. It's amazing to me. They're standing on their own. They're self-sufficient in the Holy Spirit. That's where they should be. I will not always be doing what I'm doing right now. What I've been doing for 41 years and a half years. And then some. Others will follow in my wake go further in the word of truth and lead others farther than I have done. We may be experiencing right now and have been for several weeks a hint of things to come. Our country isn't, re- isn't done yet being tested. This generation hasn't faced its deepest tests. But the one who called us in the beginning is faithful. He's always here. He will never leave us nor forsake us. He is always with you. He will never leave you even for a moment in whatever state or condition you're in. Jesus said to his disciples something unusual. He said, it is to your advantage that I go away. What? The whole lives of these disciples found its quality and its wonder and its glory from being with him. And he says, it's to your advantage that I go away. John 16, 7. He said this because he anticipated the coming of the spirit of truth which in reality was his own coming in a way 
that would be more intimate to his disciples. Jesus would be seen more clearly by them in his physical absence from them. We see Jesus was written to an audience who had not seen him in his physical presence, but had heard about him from those who saw him. The pastor, too, must go away. This happens while he's still teaching. He starts to go away. For he's destined to fade from view if he's doing his job. Destined to fade from view as Jesus is more and more seen by you whom he teaches and exhorts. This goes against the grain of everything today where people want to be seen, noticed, recognized, and have their names recognized. This goes against the grain. When John the baptizer said, I must decrease and he must increase, he was going against the grain. The spirit of truth himself is the master teacher. He himself leads you into the fullness of truth that prepares you to meet your God. The fullness of the truth that is embodied in Jesus, not in a pastor or an evangelist, not in a famous Christian, but in Jesus. And as the spirit of grace, he imparts elevating grace to you that strengthens your vertical. You've heard that phrase many times before. I'm not speaking sentimentally here. Not at all. I'm speaking the truth in love. As I'm sure of the things I've just told you, I'm also confident that we should continue right now with the study of Hebrews. Maybe that's why you tuned in. And within that study, we have what we call the Corona series. I think this is the 20th shot at it. About the coronation of the Lord of glory. Our Lord Jesus. Check it out. Hebrews 1.10. And... In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, and like a cloak, you'll roll them up. You'll change them like a garment, but you are the same And your years will never come to an end. This little word and, kai, K-A-I in the Greek in 110, like the phrase kai palin or and again in 1-5 or in 1030 of Hebrews, simply serves to introduce another quotation from the Greek text of the Hebrew scriptures. We call that the Old Testament. The Greek version we generally call the Septuagint, although there are other Greek versions than the Septuagint, for example, the Theodosian version. The bulk of Hebrews 1, 10 to 12 is a quotation of Psalm 102, 25 to 27, which is the Septuagint or the Greek 101, 26 to 28. I hope you're paying attention to this. In the Greek version, Psalm 101, in your Bibles, it's 102, 1 probably. 
This psalm is introduced as a prayer of the poor one, a poor man, a poor woman, a poor person, in the sense of an oppressed person who is exhausted and in anguish, actually. Psalm 102.1, LXX 101.1. This kind of prayer is almost a genre within the Psalms. It's almost a, a category of Psalms within the Psalms, where we often read about the poor one or the oppressed or this poor man, as one psalmist says, and of their prayers to God and of God's care for them in answer to their prayer. In Psalm 12.6, LXX 11.6, for example, we have, because of the oppression of the afflicted and the groaning of the poor, I will now rise up, says the Lord. Now, poor doesn't necessarily mean economically poor because God has chosen those who are poor in this world, in this world's way of doing things, but who are rich in faith. He chose them to give his kingdom in this age and the one to come. James 2.5, I think, might address that. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and oppressed, says the psalmist in Psalm 25.16, LXX 24.16. And again, I'll use the same device as this other PT. And again, Psalm 69.29, LXX 68.30, I am poor and in pain. Let your saving presence, literally your saving face, your saving countenance, come to my aid. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God that shines from the face of Jesus Christ. Imagine if you're having a dream, and in the dream you're drowning, in the dream you're exhausted, in the dream you can't help yourself, you're going under. And then all of a sudden you look up through the waters and you see the face of the Lord Jesus Christ who's ready to grip you and pull you up. That's the saving face of Christ, his saving countenance, his saving face. And so your nightmare turns into the best of dreams. Besides its suitability to the florilegium, where many verses are gathered like a bouquet of flowers to illustrate the superiority of the sun over angels, we're still on that theme. This particular psalm selection is fitting for, especially for the word of exhortation, which is Hebrews in toto. The readers slash hearers of this homily have evidently become weary and some are near to caving in to battle fatigue in the war on the saints. Now in this verse, there appears a word which is pretty rare in the scriptures. That's Psalm 101.1 in the Septuagint, 102.1 in your English Bibles. It's an interesting word. It's found four times only in the Old Testament, LXX. It is ake diao, A-K, long E-D-I-A-O, ake diao. And it means to be exhausted and to be in anguish. It is related to the noun Akedia, that's A-K-E-D-I-A, 
Akadia, Akadia, which has nuances of meaning that go from indifference and apathy to weariness and exhaustion. The verb means to be exhausted or to be weary and also has nuances of being anguished and even aggrieved or grieved and slightly angered because of the grief. It also has notes of frustration or exasperation. Often grief carries with it a kind of despondency or despair. And then, now and then, you see grief acting out with anger and exasperation. And that's the time when we have to be forbearing and long-suffering with people who are in such a state. Hopefully it won't last very long and it will only be temporary. If not, a root of bitterness can spring up and defile many. All the people around this person with a bitter root eventually get contaminated by them. And we have to be on the watch for that. Hebrews twelve fifteen. You can become like a bitterly slanderous late night TV host who contaminates his whole audience every night because he's not humorous anymore. He's just bitter and hateful and has caused his bitter hatred to infect many people. That's a worse pandemic than COVID-19. Now in Daniel 7.15, Daniel, the prophet, says that he had become exhausted. He used this word. He became exhausted by seeing certain apocalyptic visions of the end of time that alarmed and troubled him. In his journal, in which he writes in the first person, he uses the word akediasios or akediasis. Same word root, A-K-E-D-I-A-S-A-S to describe his interior condition. He wrote, quote, As for me, Daniel, I was exhausted by these visions of the night. The Theodosian version of this verse is a little more expressive. I prefer it quite often. In it, Daniel says, As for me, Daniel, my spirit shuddered, and the visions in my head disturbed me. Now, the psalm composer of Psalm 143, which is the LXX 142, uses this word to say, my spirit became weary in me. And that's a psalm pertaining to David, Psalm 143.4 or LXX 142.4. And in Psalm 61.2 in your English Bibles, probably, which is Septuagint 60 and verse 3, Another psalm by David, he wrote, From the ends of the earth I cried out to you when my heart was weary. Ake diasai. Same root word, A-K-E-D-I-A-S-A-I. Then he says, you lifted me up. There's elevating grace on a rock. The rock, of course, is Christ. Both Daniel and David, therefore, two greats, knew what it was to be spiritually weary. These are guys that made it into the Hall of Fame of Hebrews 11. They knew what it was like to be weary and exhausted, spiritually speaking. They also knew what it was like to be lifted up by the Lord and by his elevating grace 
after humbling themselves under his mighty hand. Sometimes humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God simply means admitting that we're wiped out, that we're insufficient, that we're exhausted. I've been there many, many times in my life and in my career as a pastor, for sure. Every time the Lord comes to meet me, eventually, with his uplifting grace. Now, why have I taken so much time on a relatively obscure word? Am I being like the obsessively etymological father of the bride in that funny movie, My Big Fat Greek Wedding? It might seem that to you sometimes if I speak to the congregation. Seems like I'm overly etymological trying to get to every word and what it means. And he's comedically so in the movie. But I'm interested in this word first because as we've discovered, it's beneficial to study the wider context of the passages that the PT has selected or that Paul quotes for that matter or alludes to or any Bible writer in the New Testament, whatever they allude to, it's better to go fan out the place where they co- they quoted and see the context. It's very profitable in almost all case all cases. The second reason for this, and is and more importantly, I think, akediasai indicates a kind of syndrome which the writer intends to confront and correct. Call it a spiritual virus if you want, but I'm not going to. In Hebrews 2.1, the writer warns them against drifting. In Hebrews 2.3, against neglecting such a great salvation. In 3.7 and 8, he warns them against hardening their hearts, hardening your hearts against the voice of the Holy Spirit. True hearing is not just hearing a pastor's message but the voice of the Holy Spirit during the course of that message. In Hebrews 5.11, he tells them outright, you have become dull of hearing, slow to understand. Sounds like Jesus to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, O fools and slow of heart to believe. In Hebrews 12.3, perhaps more strikingly of all, he urges them, consider him, that is, Jesus, who stood his ground against the hostility of sinners against him, lest you become so weary as to faint in your souls, to faint in your souls, or to utterly lose courage and quit the race. Like Paul, this PT wants his readers or hearers to fight the good fight. And lay hold of life that's really life. Not just the best that this life has to offer, but the life that is truly life, that is the very eternal life with which we partake and participate with Christ. The life that sublates the ordinary life and destroys the perishing existence. Of mere human living without God. The recipients of this letter and this homily within it or sermon within it were exactly in the position of the weary or the poor one who prayed to the Lord in Psalm 101.1 in the Greek version. 
the writer truly is a pastor with a shepherd's concern to guide his flock through a particularly perilous spiritual crisis and impart spiritual momentum to them to run this race to its conclusion. And that means until death parts them and us from this world. This world is not worthy of housing the heroes of faith. You hear ad nauseum about heroes today. A kid is a hero. Her parents say you're a hero because you had a lemonade stand. The hero that we ought to be focusing on is Jesus Christ who came and grappled with and defeated death and destroyed the one who had power over death, who holds fear of death over all the human race for all their lives. That's a hero. And the heroes of faith that the Bible considers worthy of the title heroes of faith or exemplars or elders of the faith are people for whom this world is not worthy to hold. Hebrews 11.37 says they died by stoning some of them. They were sawn in half, others of them. They died by the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins, in goatskins, destitute, afflicted, and maltreated. Abused. In Hebrews 11.38, the PT says this, the world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, caves and holes in the ground for their home. The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, Jesus said, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. This world is not his home, nor is it your home. The faithful was sometimes homeless, not because they weren't worthy to be housed by this world, but because according to the Bible, the world was not worthy to house them. You don't have to be without a house to be homeless in this world or to feel homeless. This was true for Jesus, especially started right out. There was no room for him in the inn when all the world was being taxed. All the world, the inhabited world under the Roman Caesar was coming to be taxed. He didn't fit in that world. Not only was he no place found for him in Bethlehem, there was no place for him in this world. He came to this world And the world didn't receive him. He came to his own in the world. And they didn't receive him. John 1, 10 and 11. (laughs) I often think during social occasions or about social occasions that I've been to. And I've been to hundreds of them in my life. Sometimes I think too many. What if Jesus were here in that Occasion. What if he were there? Disguised as someone else. Would he be included in the conversation? Or just neglected in people's zeal to speak about themselves or their children or their jobs or their trials and tribulations or their triumphs and achievements or their house or their furniture? Or in their enthusiasm to impress or show themselves somehow to be significant or superior or intelligent or knowledgeable 
or spiritual or religious or funny. Often it's a sad mental exercise to imagine the Lord in such a setting because sometimes you don't even picture him saying anything. He doesn't get the chance to. On the other hand, I can picture him slamming the table or the arms of his chair and saying gently but loud enough, let me tell you about my father and about his kingdom. We're sometimes worn out, aren't we? We are. And sometimes we feel like we're in a very small minority in this world, in a minority that not only doesn't receive the world's attention, but actually receives its disdain. You're truly in a minority when you're in a minority that really no one thinks of. Hebrews is a powerful dose. Listen carefully. I'm going to finish this message, believe it or not. Hebrews is a powerful dose of elevating grace for the battle-weary Christian soldiers. It's a strong boost for runners in a marathon race. This ain't no sprint. It's a blast of smelling salts for fighters in the 14th round or for runners or contestants approaching the home stretch of a race, or wrestlers in an arena of contention who are ready to faint or pass out. We are not of this world. We need strength and encouragement from future world. That's where Jesus is for us. And thank God he's in us, and greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world, trying to wear us down. He who is superior to all the angels is certainly no match for the fallen ones, and certainly no match for the evil one. Why are you afraid? Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not. Fear the evil one or any other form of evil, said the psalmist. Said the psalmist, said David. Again, consider the extended quotation of Psalm 101, 26 to 28. And observe several things about it. And I'm going to close. I have much more. I had much more to say today, but the last moment, the spirit brought a hitherto unfelt kind of urgency. First, about this extended quotation that we find in Hebrews 1, 10 to 12. Note that this quotation was immediately preceded by the psalmist's petition that the Lord would not take him away in his middle years. I think I've prayed that in my middle years, and I'm past the the middle years now. The strong request is followed by the psalmist's declaration that the Lord's years are in all generations and through all generations. This descriptive phrase, in generation of generations or through all generations, is similar to the phrase that we've already seen to the age of the ages, Hebrews 1.8. 
But it's also dissimilar in that this phrase in the generation of the generations is a smaller circle that's inside a larger concentric circle, the age of the ages. And so humanity is in a smaller circle in all the generations, in a larger circle in all the ages. It's a description of the eternality and imperishability of the Lord, who is the Son in whom God has spoken with finality in these last days. There's nothing more important than the word God spoke in his Son in these last days. If you don't think so, you might be a believer, but you aren't a believer under doctrine. You're a drifter, but not a pilgrim on his way or on her way to a city whose builder and maker is God. If you're all at home in this world, you're altogether too much at home in it. Often people look back over their lives. You talk about God saving you. People look back over their lives and they'll say, yeah, God saved me more than once. I was in an accident and survived miraculously. I was about to drown and I found a piece of driftwood. I was in a war zone. A lot of my buddies were killed and cut down, you might say, but he saved me. Well, he did save you. And if he did save you, he saved you for a bigger purpose than the one you were engaged in before he saved you. That kind of salvation of your life, which is but a vapor in this world, That's not the such a great salvation that the PT has in mind. He's speaking of the incorporation of our lives into the life of Christ. Into God's son's own life. He's speaking of the incorporation. Into a solidarity with Jesus, his son. Who was perfected through suffering and death. And exalted to the right side of the majesty in the heavens. We are one together. We are one of an unknown quantity or number of generations in the church. In a history that will culminate with the coming of the Lord. Who will be seen by every eye. Genuflected to by every knee. And worshipfully acknowledged by every tongue. So let's receive grace in order to serve him. And to serve our generation. As his co-laborers. Our generation. This generation of saints. In whom the spirit of grace has awakened faith. This whole generation of saints will give an account to him. So let's comport ourselves attentively, more attentively than we have before. 
Let's comport ourselves intelligently, letting the mind of Christ be in us. Let's comport ourselves reasonably by presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice to him, holy and acceptable to him, which is your reasonable service. Let's do so responsibly. Serve him responsibly, for we must all give an account to him. And most of all, let us keep ourselves in the love of God, Jude 21, with this in view, with Jesus in view. Now, I'm going to carry on with this particular increment in our next time together, but I, I've spoken enough today. And it's not because I'm exhausted. It's because the Holy Spirit has kind of pulled me up short, I think. At least, I think. I don't want to be presumptuous to think I'm always hearing exactly as I ought. Because though the Spirit is a perfect teacher, I'm an imperfect student. I hope that you have received this word of exhortation today in the right spirit. And so we thank you for listening. I'm talking to people who actually get it out through the whole sermon and didn't turn me off or throw down their device. Father, we thank you and we pray that you'll impart to us strong momentum. We are not yet fully prepared to meet you in glory. We know we're on this earth in order to be fully prepared, fully outfitted, fully restored so that when we meet you, we will do so on an occasion of great and exceeding joy and celebration and liberation. Comfort the weary. Strengthen the exhausted. Elevate the oppressed, the hurting, the pain, those in pain. Focus our attention on Jesus so that we may truly see him who is crowned with glory and honor. Amen.